the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the, um, let's see, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. About seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Today we are going to talk with Dr. Phil Willingham, who is the author of The Most Powerful Voice in Your Life, Learn to Tame Your Self-Talk. He'll be joining us later this hour. And then in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with uh, Douglas Gruthheis, who is the author of Walking Through Twilight. This is really a painful memoir of uh, his wife's diagnosis of dementia and the impact that that has had on Dr. Gruthheis over a period of time. Now, the name may be familiar to um, to many of you as he is um, uh, holds a Ph.D. from the University of Oregon. He's a professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary in Denver, Colorado. He has the Apologetics and Ethics Master's Degree program. He's written numerous books, including uh, Christian Apologetics and most recently Philosophy in uh, Seven Sentences. Uh, but it's a very um, painful and uh, sometimes um, challenging book to read about this this process and the impact it's had on his relationship uh, with uh, with God along the way. So looking forward to that uh, conversation. It will be a sobering one. Well, I know everyone's uh, talking about the upset, which I suppose wasn't altogether surprising. Doug Jones defeated Roy Moore in Alabama. We're going to get to that in just a few moments. But before we do, I'm going to start off with what I consider to be the most important news of t- of the day. Today happens to be my mother's birthday. She was was born on December 13th, 1930. Uh, she is 87 years old today, and uh, we're looking forward to celebrating another year. Now, as some of you might recall, 23 years ago, she and I were wheeled in uh, on uh, at OHSU to the um, uh, the kidney transplant unit where she received my kidney, and um, that transfer because it was on her birthday, and they were uh, it was a slow news day. Boy, do I wish today, December 13th, 2017, with a slow news day and they were looking for human interest stories like ours. But at the time, they ran a story about it because it was a mother-daughter uh, kidney transplant story and, uh, and all of that. It was a, a harrowing event for the two of us. They asked us separately, not knowing the nature of our relationship, if we would be interested in sharing a room or if I would prefer uh, to have my own room you know, before the surgery and then following, we were both there for about a week. This was back in the day when it was a much um, more involved surgery than now. My understanding is if you are donating a kidney, they can extract it laparoscop- Let's see, laparoscopically. That wasn't quite right, but you get the idea. And so you don't have to have the incision that starts about in the middle and all ends in the middle uh, around the back. It's a, a you know full-length incision to remove and then close things up. Anyway, we were given that option. I chose to be with my mom. I mean, after all, we were uh, going through this life-altering experience together. It was motivated uh, by love and gratitude, and spending that uh, that time with her uh, was something that I wanted to do, and she did as well. And we went to OHSU, and it was uh, 23 years ago today that they wheeled us in early in the morning 
uh, where the transplant was uh, was done. My mother uh, tells me because we were in the same room after the procedure, it took a while for each of us to be uh, to wake up and then wheeled to the room that we would stay in for a period of time that she woke up uh, slightly and she saw my dad at at her bedside. Uh, where the two of us were recovering. And, and I never saw my dad really weep. When we lost my brother, that may have been the only other time, but he he just sat at the bedside and wept. And I never knew what was in his heart and his mind at that moment. But, of course, then we didn't really know how my mom would respond to that kind of surgery. I can recall conversations with my siblings, and we were very concerned that she would not be able to keep up with all the things that were required in order for her to, uh, to do well. Um, she had to sign... It wasn't really a contract, but she had to take something like an oath saying, look, I recognize the seriousness of all of this. I recognize that it's going to require a lot to retain the strength and health of the kidney. And I'm signing off saying I'm going to do what I'm told. And we're thinking she's going to try, but this is going to be tough. I remember she had to take, I think it was the anti-rejection pills, like 50 plus of them every day. And we're just thinking this, this is going to be a really tough thing. Well, you fast forward 23 years And my mom at 87, she still manages all of her own prescriptions. She knows when to take what, how much. uh, And uh, because of the kidney and some other issues, she has quite a few prescriptions. And I marvel at the fact that she still manages all of that uh, on her own. She still lives with my husband and me in an apartment that we made for her. It seems like it's been about 15 years or so ago. We need to, to go back and do the math. And she cooks her own meals for the most part. I provide a couple of things a day for her. An option so that if, for example, she doesn't feel like making lunch, uh, there's something available for her. Uh, I will provide something that she can have for breakfast unless she feels like something else. So she is capable of managing on her own, but does have some flexibility. Uh, and I just I marvel at how physically she is able to uh, to continue to manage uh, on her own. So I'm I'm very grateful to be able to celebrate with my mom her 87th year. Now, my grandmother, her mother lived to be 94. And I've done the math, you know, I'm 61 now. And if she lives to be 94, uh, perhaps the two of us will be sharing a room at the nursing home. But um, chances are she's going to live a very long, well, chances are, you know what I mean, she's going to live a very long, and I think a very uh, healthy life in the days, days to come. Earlier today, in fact, I just rushed back to the station into the studio right before the music started playing because my sister Donna Stutzman and I were invited to a skilled nursing facility to present Christmas music and kind of a celebration there. And I feel a very strong sense of uh, honor and opportunity as well as obligation uh, to seize opportunities to be an encouragement and to bring joy and to acknowledge the value of uh, people from my mom and dad's generation. Now, these are folks who are in a skilled nursing facility. There's a memory care area for people who are struggling in that way. And uh, most of the people who came and were with us this afternoon were, were perfectly capable of managing many of their own affairs, although clearly they required some assistance or they wouldn't have been there. But we spent some time singing Christmas carols, reading the scriptures that tell us the Christmas story, and just essentially hanging out. I came to honor and appreciate and have great respect for that generation that raised uh, my generation, me and my siblings and uh, my peers. And I I just want to encourage you, if you have the opportunity to remember someone who might be a family member, um, uh, an old neighbor, a a teacher, someone that has had an impact on your life, they might be in a facility where there isn't a whole lot of traffic. This is a great, um, great season to just stop in and remind them that their lives still have value 
to spend time laughing and uh, sharing uh, some of the joy of the season together uh, with them. I noticed that when we pulled in, the parking lot was very, very small. And a part of that is because most of the people there, I'm guessing, no longer drive. But I thought, you know, it doesn't require a very big parking lot because I'm guessing there aren't a lot of people that are coming and going to visit. And I was reminded of so many who are in skilled nursing facilities and nursing homes and other places where uh, those of us uh, who age uh, go to get the kind of care that we need. And uh, Christmas season is always a great opportunity to be reminded that we have uh, tremendous uh, options available to be an encouragement, a blessing uh, to those in our community who are the next generation on. So take advantage of that opportunity if you can. All right, we're going to take a quick break. I'll get settled in here and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Democrat Doug Jones beat Republican Roy Moore in Tuesday's special election in Alabama's U.S. Senate race. Prior to the allegations of sexual misconduct, Judge Moore faced the uh, state was seen as an almost certain win for Republican candidate, any Republican candidate. President Trump won Alabama by almost 28 percentage points in 2016. There's not been a Democratic sen- uh, senator, rather, in 25 years representing the solidly red state with uh, uh, precincts reporting and the final numbers in, even though uh, Roy Moore has not yet conceded that race. He's hoping that the margin will be small enough that it will require a, an automatic recount as Alabama law requires. Um, it is pretty much a done deal. The Jones uh, win here did, in fact, hurt the conservative agenda. Bar- Brian Darling, a former staffer. Uh, For Senator Rand Paul said in an email, this development empowers the moderates in the Senate in a way that will halt progress on a free market uh, conservative agenda. He's the president, by the way, of Liberty Government Affairs, Mr. Darling. It's sad that the Republican leadership has proven so incompetent in implementing an agenda promoting free markets, lower taxes and a limited government. And that has now become even harder to pass. Well, after Jones is sworn in, there will be 49 Democratic senators or Democrat senators, rather, and 51 Republican senators. Uh, Moore, who ran as a conservative on a platform of conservatism that included support for a border wall repealing Obamacare, faced sexual misconduct allegations, although you'd hardly know that in much of the analysis on uh, how uh, and why the, uh, the election ended up as it did. But there were allegations from at least nine women, including a claim that he tried dating them when they were teenagers and he was in his 30s. Uh, one woman uh, accused more of inappropriately touching her when she was only 14. He denied the allegations, but they will be, at least in terms of the election, a, mute, a moot point at this uh, point, but not the end of the story in the state of Alabama, according to his detractors. As I mentioned, Roy Moore did not concede uh, defeat. He's waiting for uh, the final numbers that may, in fact, uh, reveal a... Uh, a uh, very small margin required by um, the state of Alabama uh, to um, kick in a national uh, a natural recall. In reflecting on it all, David French said this. He's with National Review. Tonight, Alabama conservatives told Steve Bannon and, yes, Donald Trump, that integrity matters. They told their party that some victories aren't worth the cost. They declared that partisanship isn't worth grotesque moral compromise. The Deep South said no to Roy Moore's bigotry. It said no to his ignorance and malice, end quote. From um, the Wall Street Journal, 
They write, uh, the loss is a huge blow to Mr. Trump. Personally, he now has backed three straight candidates for statewide office who have lost. He backed the loser in the Virginia governor's race. He backed the loser in the Alabama Republican Senate runoff. And in the past two weeks, he threw his full support behind the man who lost in the Alabama Senate general election. The implications are enormous. Now, I'm always a, a bit hesitant when uh, that kind of a statement is made. The implications are enormous. Well, they may not be quite as enormous as we tend to think they are in the heat of a a battle that's uh, just completed. But nonetheless, that's what most uh, pundits would like us to think. The enormous implications can be understood and known fully right now. But they go on to write that if Mr. Trump's message and personal power aren't enough to win a state in the deep red South, then mainstream Republicans will have little reason to think they can rely on those factors elsewhere, nor will they think they can uh, they are compelled to follow the lead uh, of their own president on matters uh, political. Now, again, without putting much stock in the the allegations against Roy Moore and the role that that played in all of this. It can give you kind of a skewed view of what uh, what happened and the overconfidence that we can interpret what it means moving forward. Uh, Jim Gagory from the uh, National Review says this, Roy Moore may well may very well have been the worst Senate nominee for any major party in American history, even if you dismiss the allegations of uh, him sexually pursuing teenagers in his 30s, and there was no compelling reason to believe Moore's shifting denials, he managed to create appalling new controversies in almost every appearance. Later, he wrote, Tonight's result is, in fact, a long-term victory for the Republican Party. Had Moore gone to the Senate, he would have faced a Senate Ethics Committee investigation. Had that investigation brought back anything less than a full exoneration, GOP, uh, GOP senators would have faced the decision of whether to expel him. As is, Moore could be uh, counted on to create new controversies every time he faced the cameras. Every Republican would constantly be asked if they agreed with their fellow senators' controversial contentions about reds and yellows, unnecessary constitutional amendments, the wisdom of Vladimir Putin, or whether America was the focus of evil in the modern world. And then finally, the Daily Caller, there are some uh, some who believe Al Franken was delaying his so-called resignation so he could announce that he was, in fact, staying, had more won. Well, that wasn't necessary, so we don't know whether or not that was part of the goal. But the Minnesota Lieutenant Governor Tina Smith has been appointed uh, to temporarily fill the Senate seat of Democratic Senator Al Franken, who will be leaving. He resigned amid allegations of sexual misconduct and pressure within his party to leave office. It will be my great honor to serve Minnesota as United States Senator Smith said in accepting that appointment. I am resolved to do everything I can to move Minnesota forward. This is a difficult moment for us, but even now I'm filled with optimism for Minnesota. End quote. Well, Smith is a Democrat, of course, was appointed by Democratic Governor Mark Dayton and will serve until a special election next year to uh, complete Franken's term ending in 2020. I want to appoint the person uh, whom I believe will best represent the people of Minnesota in the Senate, Dayton said, uh, making the announcement. She has impeccable integrity and the highest personal and professional standards. She will be a senator of whom all Minnesota will be proud. Well, Dayton was under pressure from Washington Democrats to appoint a replacement who would run in 2018. And Smith said Tuesday that she indeed would run next year to keep that seat. So things moving forward, as um, some expected, others uh, feigning absolute shock at the outcome uh, will eventually get over it. Well, Alabama's Doug Jones is facing, according to pundits, early pressure to vote with the GOP after the upset victory. 
his victory in the Alabama Senate race dashed Republicans' hard-fought efforts to keep the open seat and retain their narrow two-seat majority. That will end in January. But GOP leaders already are angling to convince Jones to back their legislative agenda, hoping he'll be willing to buck his own party in order to retain support from the state's largely conservative voters. Uh, many are predicting he won't uh, win a second term when that election comes up, given the red state of uh, Alabama. But things could be changing. We actually don't know uh, what this all may mean moving forward. But Jones' narrow victory over Republican Roy Moore marks the first time in 25 years that Alabama voters have elected a Democratic senator. Uh, the Fox News voter analysis shows he won with support from black, young and female voters. But Jones was no doubt aided by the sexual misconduct allegations against Republican Roy Moore. And Alabama remains a very deep red state. 62 percent of Alabama voters picked Republican President Trump in 2016. And there was a write-in campaign campaign that deprived uh, Roy Moore of enough votes to have won that election. So again, a lot uh, we don't know about what this may mean uh, moving forward, but there will be an election in Alabama moving forward, and perhaps we'll have a, a better understanding of what uh, what to make of it all. Uh, Mark Galley, writing about the uh, the election in the headline in Christianity Today, pointed out the biggest loser in the Alabama election, no matter the outcome in today's special election in Alabama, he wrote, for a coveted U.S. Senate seat, there is already one loser, Christian faith. When it comes to either matters of life and death or personal commitments to the human heart, no one will believe a word we say, perhaps for a generation. Christianity's integrity is severely tarnished. Well, that may be an overstatement, but I think there's some grain of truth to what he writes. He goes on, the race between Republican candidate Roy Moore and Democratic candidate Doug Jones has only put an exclamation point on a problem that's been festering for a year and a half, even since a core of strident conservative Christians began to cheer for Donald Trump without qualifications, and a chorus of other believers decried that uh, that support is as immoral. The Christian leaders who have excused, ignored, or justified his unscrupulous behavior and his indecent rhetoric have only given credence to their critics who accuse them of hypocrisy. Meanwhile, the easy uh, willingness of moderate and progressive Christians to cast dispersions on their conservative brothers and sisters has made many wonder about our claim that Jesus Christ can bring diverse people together as no other can. Well, he writes much more about that. Again, it's uh, dated yesterday. The headline, The Biggest Loser in the Alabama Election, uh, might be an article worth reading. And uh, finally, uh, Jeremy Weber, again writing for Christianity Today, uh, quotes Sal Moeller saying that the Senate election sends a signal to the Republican Party and to conservative Christians. An incredible amount of evangelical Christians said this was a bridge too far. This is how Albert uh, Moeller explained to CNN live at 1 a.m. the unexpected loss, although unexpected, not so much, of Roy Moore to Doug Jones in Alabama's special election for the U.S. Senate. It's nothing less than stunning. As expected, the state's white evangelicals mostly voted for the Republican candidate by a, a wide four to one margin. However, enough of the heart of Dixie's pro-life contingent voted instead for the Democratic candidate, one in four, to help hand the pro-choice politician the surprising victory by a narrow um, 1.5 percentage points. Hmm. According to exit polls, 44% of Alabama's voters Tuesday were white, born again, or evangelical Christians. In the last two elections with state level uh, exit polling, 2008 and 2012, their share was 47%, making them the only group showing slight signs of slippage. Anyway, much more to consider than the outcome of the election. 31 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Negative news, fake news, confusing news. We are surrounded by so much negative advertising, political speeches, and conflict that we easily fall prey to it all. According to my next guest, 70% of the thoughts we have are negative, and, the count, and they're counterproductive. That's Dr. Phil Willingham. Well, the impact from a stream of negative, disparaging, and catastrophic thinking is a higher rate of depression. Self-talk can influence your mood, behavior, and your response to life, he says. He says the average male speaks about 20,000 words a day, and the average female about 30,000. One year of conversation would fill 66 books with 800 pages each. But it's what we say to ourselves, the internal conversations we have that impact how we think. Well, the author of The Most Powerful Voice in Your Life, Dr. Willingham says, the most powerful voice in your life is not your parents. It's not your friends or spouses. The most powerful voice is what we say to ourselves. And he explains this has nothing to do with self-help and everything to do with reorienting, rather, the false or unhelpful message we have growing up. Well, the more we hear something, the more we think uh, something. Advertisers know this. Writers of fake news know this. Propagandists know this. Well, in his book, Dr. Willingham, he identifies the most common distortions in how we view our world from overgeneralizing or uh, all or nothing thinking. He uh, helps readers recognize the eight key ways we engage in twisted thinking. And while changing the way we think is not a panacea for solving all the problems in life, the way we think does impact our relationships and our dispositions, which can, in fact, have a pretty broad impact elsewhere. Well, Dr. Willingham serves as the lead pastor of Heartland Christian Center in Indiana. He holds a master's degree in theology and master's of divinity, as well as doctoral uh, in ministries. After a serious car accident, he was forced to make major changes in his life, which helped him develop a strong awareness about how to overcome major life challenges. He and his wife, Rhonda, They've been married for about 40 years. They have three adult children, and he joins us today to talk about his uh, little book that's uh, full of lots of wisdom, The Most Powerful Voice in Your Life, Learn to Tame Your Self-Talk. Dr. Willingham, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it is a pleasure, Miss Georgine, to be with you today. Such an honor. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. What happened in your life that started you thinking about the importance of how we communicate, not just to others, but what we say to ourselves? Yeah, you know, I I think, you know, Georgina, for me and myself, and then even in the conversations that I've had with people over the years, uh, you know, very early in my life, I began to recognize definitely the power of words. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home, you know, had a great, uh, you know, Christian foundation uh, to my life, and yet so many times, even in church, uh, you, you know, we we try to make every problem a spiritual problem. Mm. By that, I mean uh, a lot of times when you struggled and you wasn't, you know, being triumphant or victorious or getting through a situation, well, you need to pray more, and you or you need to fast more, you need to go to church more, you need to read your Bible. It's always about, you, you know, you should do this, you, you should always, always talk about, and I have to be careful how I say this, but I grew up in a church where they should all over you sometimes, you know, and, and many times what I discovered in my life, it wasn't that God's Word wasn't true, it wasn't that God's Word wasn't powerful, the Holy Spirit was present today, but so many times it was my own destructive words, it was that self-talk.
out that would come back. You know, they they talk about, you know, there's different studies, but we can speak about 120 words per minute, but we can think about 1,300 words a minute. Now, you, you think about that, Georgine, that if you have 1,300 words that you can think a minute, 10 minutes of negative thinking, that's 13,000 destructive, discouraging words that gets pumped into your spirit, your heart, your mind. And if you hear something long enough, it, and it begins to get ingrained in you over and over, it becomes truth to you. Going back to as a kid, my dad used to always say, you know, Phil, he can play anything that's got strings on it. I grew up in a church where everybody played a string instrument. We didn't have a piano, an organ. is all uh, bluegrass style. You play the guitar, play the... And, and my dad would say, he can play anything. Well, even at six, seven, eight years old, I, I, I believe that. I heard it. He said it. He's good with his hands. And I would see any instrument, and, and today I can play a guitar, banjo, mandolin, violin, whatever. I was never challenged by that. But you go on the other side of that. I also heard as a kid, well, you know, he struggles in school. He doesn't do real good with tests. And, uh, you know, he, he, has, he has trouble learning. And, again, that got ingrained in me. And, you know, my dad, love him, but he said, hey, you know, Phil, you better learn a trade, son, because, you, you know, you probably will never go to college. And the crazy thing about it, out of six of us kids, I'm the only sibling that ever <laughs> went to college to get a degree. Now, it wasn't that all of a sudden at the age of 30, and I was 30 years old, I dropped out of school at 16. You mentioned the car accident I was in. There were some things that occurred there, but I ended up dropping out of school and, and actually getting in the ministry, got a call to God. At the age of 30, I go back, get my GED, start on the trail of, of, of going back to school, getting a bachelor's and a master's and another master's and, another, and then a doctorate. It wasn't, and I tell people, it wasn't that all of a sudden God baptized me with brains and smarts. I started thinking different. I started talking different. And I, I stopped believing the lies that, that had been ingrained. You know, when you, when you look at Proverbs 13, 3, it says, He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens his, wide, uh, his lips wide shall have destruction. And I, I think that destructive self-talk, uh, you, you know, we can level against ourselves on a daily basis. So the Bible says you have to guard your heart, guard your spirit, uh, you know, guard the things that we feed and we hear into that. And, uh, and I, you know, over the 40-plus years of ministry, I constantly see people. So, that that do that they they think well I need to pray more and I need to well no one of the things you got to bring your thoughts bring your words bring your actions bring your attitudes into alignment with what God's word says. Mm. Now, how is this what you've just described? How is that different than um, the power of positive thinking? Uh, And where does truth fit into how we speak uh, to ourselves and and how we sometimes disregard truth when it comes to self-talk as opposed to what we would say to others? Sure, yeah. And that and that's a great question because I hear so many people that, that try to push back to me sometimes and they say, Well, you know, Pastor Phil, God's voice is more powerful than my voice or your voice. And I said, Well, really, why is it that so many people will say to me in counseling or whatever, Well, Pastor, I know what the Bible says, or well, I know what God tells me to do. 
but they go and they do something different. <laughs> many, many times it's because they have had other behaviors and attitudes and mindsets that's been ingrained in them. You know, we we constantly try to encourage parents to, you know, you know be careful when you say things like, hey, you're stupid or you're lazy, mm. you're good for nothing, or you're just like your dad or you're just like your grandpa. Because, again, what happens if you hear something layer by layer, our self-images are created, and in time, our minds join in with that chat. And I talk about self-talk. Our, our oldest daughter, we have three children. You may, our oldest daughter, Sunshine, has, was born with Down syndrome. Now, Sunshine's 40 years old now. She works in the church with us in our preschool, and she has great relational skills. But Downs, I notice at young age, Down syndrome children, they will do their self-talk out loud. Now, most mm. adults don't want to admit we talk to ourselves, but we do. We just kind of keep it silent. But but sometimes when she get upset, she'll go upstairs, and, you know, if we've asked her to cooperate with something or do something or chore, she might not always want to do it, but she'll go upstairs, she'll shut her door, and you can hear her behind the door talking to herself, walking her through that process, telling what I've asked her or her mom or whatever. And then eventually she comes down after she's kind of navigated her way through that, and she works. And again, what happens in our lives as adults, what, what we think is normal people, we do a lot of that self-talking. And the sad thing about it is it it's becomes negative to us. Yeah, the- yeah. I need to take a quick break, but I want to continue that line of, of uh, conversation in just a moment. Again, we're talking this afternoon about the book, The Most Powerful Voice in Your Life, Learn to Tame Your Self-Talk. My guest, Dr. Phil Willingham. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. Clark and I just planning our uh, visit at the Flanagan's Boathouse in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania, right after the show. I have no idea where that came from. <laughs> anyway. Uh, we are continuing a conversation on a very important book uh, on how we speak to ourselves, and we may minimize that as being, well, it's just what I, you know, it's just what I do. Uh, but he writes uh, in the title of the book is The Most Powerful Voice in Your Life, Learn to Tame Your Self-Talk. I'm referring to Dr. Uh, Phil Willingham. Now, just before the break, you were talking about your daughter who uh, has Down syndrome and she speaks out loud when she is engaged in self-talk in her room. And you were contrasting that with what many of us do, although we don't like to admit that we <laughs> that we speak to ourselves uh, in any uh, any substantive way. One thing I want to ask you before you talk about the rest of us, do you find that your daughter's self-talk is more uh, accurate or, or less... Um, Unflattering than the average person's self-talk. How how would you um, compare them? And that that's a great question. You know, one of the one of the unique things, uh, Miss Georgine, about Down syndrome children, they have a they have such a pure honesty about them that just kind of comes out. Uh, you know, Sunshine has a tremendous ability to to discern people i mean she she can tell me real quickly if she likes somebody if she doesn't like someone and and that pure honesty kind of comes out of her and i don't know you know i've been around a lot of uh, downs and even special needs children uh, over the years we've done a lot of ministry uh, i don't know if it's unique to just down, I, I think there's an honesty there that kind of comes out of 
what she does with her with her verbalization that she she kind of just is honest with what her feel again going back to what we often do as adults or teenagers, whoever we are, we have a tendency that we lie to others and then maybe speak the truth to ourselves or vice versa. We may speak the truth to others and, and, and lie to ourselves. Again, uh, one of the things that I've noticed over the years in pastoring is, you know, I've, I've dealt with so many people who's had tremendous experiences, good, bad, ugly. You know, we live in a broken world. Good things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people. But but what I notice is that it, it is the it's a cliche for some, but it's truth. Is that what happens to us is is often just totally out of our responsibility. But what happens in us? What do we say to ourselves about that? And what I've discovered over the years in ministry, it's not so much the event, because I've seen people go through just tremendous heartache and and brokenness of an experience, and yet through their words, through their thoughts, how how they navigated through that, they come out victorious. And I've seen some people trip up on a broke toenail or whatever. You know, they mm-hmm. nobody spoke to me this week at church and they 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 let their hearts get uh, filled with uh, this bitterness inside and unforgiveness. And so and I talk about in the book that it's not so much what happens to you, it's the story that you tell yourself. You know, something happens to all of us and and what we begin to consistently and persistently say about that event that begins to build your personality your character and and even it begins to to focus your life in what direction you know our words are going to take us up our words are going to take us down they're like an elevator they they can boost us or or they can they can absolutely cause you to tank on any given day and when it comes to getting back to the scripture side of this, one of the challenges what I do in my life, and I challenge people, is we have to ask the Holy Spirit to help us edit the story that we're constantly telling ourselves. Ask God, and, and then we bring our thoughts, we bring those motives and those attitudes, we bring them back in a line with, with what God's Word says. You know, uh, you know, Proverbs, again, talked about that, that there's one who speaks like a piercing sword, but the tongue of the wise, what does it do? It, it promotes health in us. And we understand that. It's, it's just a matter, I think, of recognizing it and then moving it towards what's going to get me through this situation. What am I going to say to myself about this situation today? How do I, how do I become the gatekeeper to guard, number one, what I'm hearing? You know, because, again, people, people say things passing by, and we sometimes are not affected by it. And somebody can say something, and it just be one of those days, and before you know it, you're mulling that thought and you're turning that thought in your mind for the next 15, 30 minutes or so. And again, if it's negative, it's going to be one of those things that's going to take you down and not take you up. Yeah, it's like a cow chewing its cud. It starts out as a you know a little wad of, of greenery and then it, it tends to expand. And before you know it, you're almost choking on the size of what's now wow. uh, you know, yeah. grown in your mouth. 
Yeah, and I and I talk about you know getting rid of that 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 bad self talk, that BS, that bad self image of I stink, you stink, life stinks. You know, I stink is that attitude. I'm, I'm bad. I'm worthless. You know. Again, I've had several experiences in my life, and I talk a little bit about it in the book, mm-hmm. but just where. When you don't guard that, when you when you start thinking, "Hey, this is this is happening because I'm stupid." No, you're not stupid. You're human. Did did you make a mistake? Did you make a bad decision? Maybe so. But but rather than kind of filling your mind with, uh, well, it, I must be something wrong with me. Uh, you know, I must be a broken person. I must, you know. But then what happened? I stink starts moving towards you stink, and I start looking around and everybody's again me. And I start having my pity parties. And I tell people, when I have my pity parties, the only ones that want to show up is me, myself, and I. And it's a sad, it's a sad party. <laughs> and there are never you know? refreshments. There's no cake. There's no punch. You know? <laughs> What's the point? You know, you're just <laughs> and then, but eventually what happens, going back to the spiritual side, we start thinking that life stinks. And that's, that's when people start believing, well, God is against me. And well, you know, he's fighting against me. And why, why doesn't he help me? And and, you know, well, if God's Word says this, then, then how come it's not working in my life? You know, Isaiah, I, I love, you know, he used the power of his speech to give strength. He said he said there in a verse in Isaiah, I think it's uh, 50, chapter 50, verse 4 or 5, he said, The Lord's given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak in a season to him who is weary. And I think for a husband or a wife or a parent, that's something we have to ask discernment for every day, mm-hmm. not just for our own lives, but being able to discern even with our kids and our parents. And you know, I, I heard earlier you know, the story of you and your mom. That that's tremendous with with a, 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 a longevity and longevity of a parent. And yet, you know, we live in a squeeze generation where we got parents we're taking care of, and we got kids we're taking care of, and grandkids. And and what happens is if we're not careful. Our words can kind of fall out of our lips, and that's not even realize. Hey, maybe maybe that wasn't real uplifting. Mm-hmm. Maybe that, you know, I, I need to be I need to be aware of that. So yeah, yeah. A couple of things that I want to make sure our listeners are aware of that I appreciate about the book. It teaches your readers to recognize when our self talk is not in alignment with God's word, and I appreciate that it's not just it's it's in your best interest to speak pleasantly about yourself, but you encourage us to to look at what does God's word say. So it gives value to what you're saying about how important it is what we say to ourselves. And you also use tools from the Bible that help your reader to live a victorious life by taking control of what comes out of our mouth when we're the only one in audience. And these, I think, are very valuable things that can help us navigate through life in a way that's Christ-honoring, that reflects a biblical worldview and and saves us from ourselves in, in so many ways. Uh, you know, absolutely. That I think that's well put, Georgine. In fact, uh, Sharia, I tell people, this is not another self-help book. I'm not against somebody standing in front of the mirror making positive confession, but this is not about mm-hmm. doing that. It's about how do we bring our lives and our words and our thoughts into alignment. God's Word has to become the final authority in my life. And what if, if I can do that with my thoughts and, and my confessions, what I'm saying, now I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... It doesn't mean I'm not going to have troubles and, and problems, and I'm not going to face 
uh, you know, moments of discouragement or even depression. You know, you again, you read through the Bible. How many times you read David saying, mm. "And David said to himself." You know, mm. David talked. You know, there was that zigzag when everybody was speaking of stoning him, and they were crying out against him. It's your fault. The Bible said David encouraged himself, himself. <laughs> and the Lord. Though, he yeah, didn't, yes, he didn't stand in front of a mirror and hey, I'm a great. He, he went to God. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, the book once again is titled "The Most Powerful Voice in Your Life: Learn to Tame Your Self Talk." Uh, Billion Soul Publishing is the publisher, and uh, Doctor Phil, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about it here today. Hey, it's been incredible. Thank you so much, Georgine. Thank you for your for your time. Thank you. And Merry Christmas. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Uh, glad to have you with us as we are about to undertake a conversation that I've had mixed feelings about. On the one hand, I'm very interested in speaking with the author of, of, of a book that has been very uh, moving and terrifying all at the same time, and one that I want you to be made aware of, but also a, a challenging conversation that I think most of us would prefer never to have to have about anyone we care about. The book is titled Walking Through Twilight, A Wife's Illness, A Philosopher's Lament. Using a phone, tying her shoes, brushing her teeth, these are the things that philosopher Douglas Gruthheis's once brilliant wife can no longer do as a result of the ravages of dementia. Opening his journey to us, he mixes personal narrative with spiritual insight and moments of lament, as well as philosophical and theological reflection. Uh, brief interludes provide poignant pictures of life inside their household. We meet a, a parade of caregivers, including a very skilled companion dog, Losses for both Doug and Becky, he and his wife, come daily, and Doug's questions for God multiply as he navigates the descending darkness. Here is a frank exploration of how one continues to find God in the twilight. Most of us hope and pray we will never find ourselves there, and yet that is, for many of us, precisely uh, what God has in store. Well, Douglas uh, Gruth Heiss is a Ph.D. from the University of Oregon. He's a professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary and uh, Colorado, where he uh, leads the Apologetics and Ethics Master's Degree Program. His articles have been published in professional journals like the Religious Studies, uh, Philosophia Christi, and others. Uh, he has written numerous books, including Philosophy in Seven Sentences and Truth Decay. He joins us today to talk about this um, very personal lament, Walking Through Twilight, A Wife's Illness, A Philosopher's Lament. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, thanks. Thanks very much for having me. You make the point that you really didn't want to write this book, but it was a book that wanted to be written. Explain your reluctance in writing it, and I think I could answer why it needed to be written, but from your perspective, why ultimately you uh, you agreed with many who advised you that this was uh, a good thing, uh, that it was, in fact, the right thing to do. I wanted it to help people who were going through something similar that I am, caregivers, uh, those that are close to people who are suffering from dementia. And I found that by writing, and I really have writing in my blood, mm-hmm. that it helped give me perspective on things. I wouldn't say it was therapeutic, really. It was more trying to understand better what was happening. Could I find God working somehow in the midst of it? And then offering it to others. That was really the purpose. And I was reluctant because I thought it would be extremely 
sad, and I was also reticent to write anything like a memoir. But once I started writing it, it flowed quite naturally, and it seemed like I had the words to help people enter this world, which is not only our world, but it's our lot under the sun. As Mm -hmm. Ecclesiastes says, it's a broken world. And we have to learn how to wisely embrace very uh, excruciating circumstances. So I'm hoping the book, hoping that the book will do that. Well, the book does do that. As difficult it is as it is to to pick it up, because it's a subject, as I mentioned earlier, that most of us would prefer to think will be uh, something someone else will go through, and we ourselves will never have to face in any meaningful or personal way. Now, for listeners who are not familiar with you or your writing, this really represents a a departure from uh, what you have been best known for. Your work has responded to attacks on Christianity. You've also written about corruptions within the Christian faith. Your wife was uh, was there with you near the beginning, uh, having met in 1983. Tell us a little bit about the two of you and your writing. Mm -hmm. Well, we met when we both worked with a campus ministry in Eugene, Oregon, And we pretty quickly fell in love, and I went to graduate school. We got married, by the way. I went (laughs) to graduate school with Becky, and she was always a part of my work, getting through my degrees, editing my books. She wrote two books of her own, Women Caught in the Conflict, another one called Good News for Women. So we were always very close um, emotionally, but also intellectually. So, of course, this kind of a disease is especially painful, since that was such a significant part of our lives together. How did the two of you discover that the the type of dementia that she was uh, experiencing would rob her of the very thing that she was most erudite in, best known for, and um, that was a a major connection between the two of you in terms of at least the work that you have done? Mm -hmm. Well, erudite's a good word for it. I don't think I used that in the book, but um, Becky had symptoms related to cognitive difficulties for some time, but it was only diagnosed about three and a half years ago. And Becky has a general understanding of what's going on. We know that it's irreversible, apart from a miracle. But in some ways, it was a clarifying moment uh, because Becky had been ill for so long and we never quite knew what what it was that was causing the cognitive symptoms. And when she was diagnosed with primary progressive aphasia, then we knew. And at that point, I knew, I was told there's really no cure. Uh, I found out later there's really nothing that even slows it down. But there's a text in Ecclesiastes 3 that says there's a time to give up. And when I heard that diagnosis, or shortly later, uh, I gave up. I didn't give up on God. I didn't give up on loving my wife, but I gave up on her situation getting much better. Mm -hmm. And then I shifted gear to trying to discern what do you do when you are the person responsible for someone with such a, a dire condition. So it's more like managing decline lovingly and wisely. I am a caregiver of a different kind, but I, I think it would probably be true to say that in your your situation, as in mine, it's difficult in unexpected ways and more difficult than perhaps one can anticipate before undertaking the, the title. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, you learn all kinds of things you never wanted to know. Mm -hmm. In fact, I have a chapter in the book to that effect. I really didn't know the protocols of a mental health unit in a hospital. That was difficult. Uh, People are locked in. They have strange rules that are hard to understand. I never knew what a, a guardian meant, a conservator, and that's where someone takes all the responsibilities of someone else. The conservatorship is a financial arrangement, and I found it to be very onerous because uh, I'm a philosopher. I'm not good at organizing things. And worst of all, I found out about this disease, which I had never heard of until a psychiatrist told me over the phone about uh, almost four years ago now. So I can't so dignify it as to call it an adventure. It's simply a, a dark path we're on, and we have to look for available light, and find the meaning where we can. And I want to provide the best care, but I often uh, don't know exactly what to do. Mm -hmm. And many caregivers are in that situation. You feel very inadequate. You chose the the title Twilight instead of Darkness, and you uh, write that since I wrote this book while Becky is at home and I can still communicate with her, when this changes, it will be uh, darkness, and I won't write of that. Um, you describe where you are now while she is still there with you, um, uh, Twilight. Mm-hmm. W- what do you anticipate will, will follow immediately? Will she leave the, the home that the two of you have shared? What do you anticipate comes right. next before total darkness? Well, I'm not sure. We mm. certainly want to do everything we can to help her in the best way possible. And we will see how that works out as she continues with this illness. I certainly have some things in place if we need something outside the home. But right now we have a living caregiver and then we have other people that come in. And, of course, I caregiver, I care for her and try to manage things, make sense of things. Now we're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation when we return. I'd like to talk a little bit about the experience from the vantage point of the person with the diagnosis And then the challenge to one's faith, worldview, and walk as a caregiver. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 22 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My guest is Douglas Gruthheis. His book is titled Walking Through Twilight, A Wife's Illness, A Philosopher's Lament. Now, the book is a philosopher's, and I think we've lost our guest. I'm not seeing him there. Um, the book really is a philosopher's uh, lament. He writes about the challenges of uh, understanding God's God's hand, under, tracing his hand and uh, his heart in the midst of what are the uh, most difficult circumstances one might imagine. And when we uh, get him back on the line, which I assume we will momentarily, uh, I want to talk to him also about uh, his wife. Uh, she was uh, alert enough at the time of the diagnosis that she was aware of what was happening, what was going to happen. And does it make it uh, less challenging uh, to see that she no longer carries the burden of of understanding all that's been lost? We'll get into that with him in just a few moments. The book, by the way, is published by InterVarsity Press, as I mentioned at the top of the first segment of today's program. It's a difficult uh, book to read because it reminds us that suffering and pain are a, a part of uh, life that we live um, and has always been the case. Um, Eric Metaxas, Os Guinness, J.P. Moreland, and Lee Strobel all write about 
the book and uh, highly recommend it as well. Uh, I apologize. I'm not sure how we lost you, but I appreciate your uh, uh, your being back with us. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is how your wife is navigating all of this. At the time of the diagnosis, my guess is she was uh, fully aware of what was being said about her future. She may be less aware of that as time goes by. But how challenging has it been for her as her capacity is diminishing, her ability to formulate words, which is something that she was gifted uh, with? Uh, how has that how has she managed to navigate that from her vantage point as the person with the diagnosis? Well, it's obviously extremely difficult. And she knows what she is losing. In fact, this type of dementia, primary progressive aphasia, is, I think, in some ways more cruel than Alzheimer's. Because often people suffering from Alzheimer's don't know what's wrong with them. Mm -hmm. But the way this disease works, people know what they're losing. And, of course, that's a terrible loss and difficult to deal with. And it can also really affect people's trust in the Lord. We were going out to eat one night and was trying to encourage Becky about what Christ has promised us in the new heavens and the new earth where there'll be no tears, no curse. And she looked at me and said, but is it really true? And I said, Becky, do you think I'm smart? And she said, yes. I said, do you remember that big apologetics book that I wrote? Yes. I said, you edited every word of that and you believed it. And I assure you that Christianity is true. So in a way, I had to believe for her. Mm. And this is so uh, pulverizing. It's so devastating to people that you can really wonder what is the meaning of all this. But she is a woman of Christian faith, and we pray, and she listens to Scripture on recordings, and uh, we can still interact. Her sense of humor is still intact. It's starting to dissipate, but we still laugh together, and I tell her what I'm doing at work and so on. But it's terrible. There's no way around that. Yeah. So we try to find things that are encouraging, like singing. There's some friends who come over and sing hymns and gospel songs with her once a week. We get her a massage once a week. And uh, our church serves communion to her once a week, which is extremely important to her. As we mentioned at the start of our conversation, that this is uh, Philosopher's Lament. This is your lament. It's a series as well of uh, meditations um, that were evoked by observing the nature and course of this disease, your response, and uh, that of others, uh, to try to understand something of the hand of God in the in the middle of all of this, in this valley that you find yourself in, the valley of suffering. Um, let's talk about how this has impacted your relationship with the Lord. You're brutally honest about some of the challenges. Um, you, you write, for example, about the temptation to hate God, which I think is understandable given what you are currently facing. Yes, and I take the reader through some of the worst moments mm-hmm. of this whole um, walking through twilight in terms especially of uh, when Becky was first put in a psychiatric unit. I really didn't understand how it worked. And the first place she was put was not very good for her. And I don't think I'd ever been so outraged and confused uh, in my life. But I really didn't think that God wasn't there. Uh, It just seemed like he wasn't helping. Uh, I knew there was a God, but I didn't see his hand in what was happening. And uh, much of my comfort comes from the whole genre of lament in the Bible. We have about 60 Psalms of Lament, according to Glenn Pemberton, an Old Testament scholar. And a book that has helped me for decades is the book of Ecclesiastes, and I quote Ecclesiastes many times throughout my own book. 
because that's the reflections of an old philosopher, really. And he realizes that there's much of life that can't be understood. However, we know that God is in control, sovereign, that he will bring all things into account. And there are ways of enjoying life, even when we can't understand a whole lot of it. But as a Christian philosopher, I am convinced that Christianity is true and rational and pertinent. So my unknowns, my ignorance, are placed within a framework of knowledge. And also, Scripture really is so kind to us because it doesn't say you can't be angry with God or there's no place for feeling desperate before God. Uh, David cries out, How long, O Lord? And uh, Psalm 88 speaks of a chronically ill person. And the last verse in that psalm, written by Heman Ezraite, is, Darkness is my closest friend. That's how it ends. It doesn't resolve. So, there is a place for godly lament, and without that, I don't really know where I would be. Throughout the book, A Walking Through Twilight, there are uh, brief interludes. That's how you describe them. Um, what purpose have they served for you in walking through this? Moments of interlude, or is that is that sort of a literary device, or is that something you've actually experienced through seasons of exhaustion and confusion and frustration punctuated by something that one might refer to as an interlude. Right. Well, that just came to me. Uh, There were certain topics I wanted to cover in the book, such as lament, being angry with God, and I have a whole chapter that exposes Psalm 90. But there were so many poignant or just painful events that Becky and I had that I wanted the reader to understand what it felt like from the inside. Some of them were very sad. Some of them were actually quite tender, where Becky and I experienced a uh, great tenderness and love for one another. And at least one of them is pretty humorous because we have this remarkable dog named Sonny who's a golden doodle, and he's a godsend because he is emotionally intelligent, he's funny. And I have one interlude simply called Sonny where Becky was in her room. She was very upset. She didn't want to come down for dinner. And Sonny came up and he sensed that something was wrong. So He began nuzzling her and making funny sounds and putting his head on the ground and his rear end up in the air, which is a crazy thing he loves to do. And then he just sat there and looked at us. And it was as if he was saying, all right, humans, you're ready to go now. (laughs) I've done my work. We're very thankful to God for our dog. Mm. Well, once again, the book is titled Walking Through Twilight, A Wife's Illness, A Philosopher's Lament. I would highly recommend it, although it is a sobering account of life as we know it. Uh, Douglas Gruthheis, I I commit to praying for you and your wife. I thank you for writing the book and for talking with us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 36 minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Want to uh, invite you once again to a very special evening uh, that's coming up on Friday. The Bible Truck uh, is going to be at Clackamas Town Center, and so are we. You can join me and the KPDQ crew for a live broadcast from the Bible Truck. That's this Friday from 4 to 6 at Clackamas Town Center. And I know what you're thinking, Clackamas Town Center, what is that, like three square miles? Where do I go? We're going to get more detail as to where specifically we plan to be. But the Bible Truck is a unique mobile Bible exhibition. It features hundreds of historical exhibits. It includes educational posters, maps, Bibles, stories of persecution, Um, videos about the Bible and clear gospel 
uh, teaching. You can come by, say hello, join us this Friday as we explore the history of the Bible together with the Bible truck. Now, I know what you're thinking. Is this just like a four by four and you stand around and, you know, hold a Bible? You actually go into an exhibit that's uh, pretty uh, pretty interesting. You can go to, in fact, to Google BibleTruck.com, I think is the right thing, and find out more about it. But you'll get some perspective on what's there. But it's kind of a cool thing to do if you're looking for some adventures for your family. And what better than to explore the uh, the Bible. And this uh, truck has been making its way all across uh, various places in the country, and uh, they'll be here in the Portland area at Clackamas Town Center, 4 to 6 this Friday. So uh, keep that in mind. Well, House and Senate GOP leaders forged an agreement today on a sweeping overhaul of the nation's tax laws. And that's paving the way for final votes next week to slash taxes for businesses, give Americans uh, modest tax cuts, deliver the first major legislative accomplishment to the president. Well, top uh, GOP aides said lawmakers had reached an agreement in the principle on the first, uh, the final package, rather. They spoke on condition of anonymity, which tells me they probably should not have because they were not authorized to talk publicly about private negotiations, although sometimes I think they actually kind of are. But one congressional aide said the deal was uh, contingent on whether late changes to the bill still uh, complied with budget rules adopted by both the House and the Senate. So that tells me there's still work to be done. Lawmakers were waiting to hear back from the analysts at the nonpartisan Joint Committee on Taxation. Well, the final House-Senate uh, compromise is on track to be unveiled next week, they went on to say. Asked if there is a, a deal in principle on the tax cuts, Senator Orrin Hatch uh, said, it's more than that. I think we've got a pretty good deal, in quotes. Uh, the number two Republican in the Senate, Senator John Cornyn of uh, Texas, said leaders were briefing senators on the plan on Wednesday with a vote planned for early next week. Republicans have a slim 52-48 majority, at least for now. Uh, that's in the Senate so that they can only afford to lose two votes. The initial Senate package passed by a vote of 51-49. And keep in mind, after January, if they don't push this through very quickly, they'll have even fewer uh, Republican votes uh, to their credit. Well, the measure would give uh, the president his first major victory in Congress. It fulfills a longstanding goal by top Republicans like House Speaker Paul Ryan to rewrite the loophole cluttered tax code. As uh, President Trump met with lawmakers at the White House, he said they were getting very, very close to an historic legislative victory, although he's also announced that he was absolutely certain that other things would pass, like the repeal and replace of Obamacare. So lawmakers are probably in a better position to judge what's actually likely to happen. The measure has come uh, under assault by Democrats who say it's unfairly tilted in favor of business and the wealthy. Top Senate Democrat Chuck Schumer said uh, today that GOP leaders should pump the brakes on taxes and delay a final vote until uh, Senator-elect Doug Jones of Alabama is sworn in, which makes it less likely that they can actually pass the thing. So that's the way politics works. Uh, it would be wrong for the Senate Republicans to jam through this tax bill without giving the newly elected Senator from Alabama the opportunity to cast his vote. Well, back then, or I should say Schumer uh, told reporters that's exactly what Republicans argued when former Massachusetts GOP Senator Scott Brown was elected in 2010. Back then, the issue was a sweeping overhaul of the nation's health care system that Democrats muscled through Congress in March of 2010. So muscling things through only sounds like a good idea if you happen to be the party in power. And then, of course, once you're out of power or favor, then suddenly it's the worst thing that you could possibly consider doing for the American people. 
Uh, Trump was uh, making a pitch Wednesday for the tax plan, which is uh, unpopular with uh, some. He'll offer uh, what aides uh, called a closing argument to the American people. He planned he delivered the speech rather from the uh, grand foyer, the, the entrance of the White House mansion, laying out how the tax changes will specifically benefit the middle class families in attendance from Pennsylvania, Ohio, Virginia, Iowa and Washington state. It comes as the White House has uh, sought to push back against polling, suggesting the public views the plan uh, as heavily tilted toward corporations and wealthy Americans, primarily because that's the message that you're, you're hearing from the, uh, the media almost across the board. Trump has asserted that the plan will lower tax rates for individuals and spur job growth, helping American families. The total amount of tax breaks in the legislation can't exceed $1.5 trillion the next decade under budget rules adopted by both the House and the Senate. The legislation would add billions to the $20 billion national debt. Once the plan is signed into law, workers could start seeing changes in the amount of taxes withheld from their paychecks early next year, lawmakers say, uh, though taxpayers won't uh, uh, won't file their 2018 returns until the following year. Well, in a flurry of last-minute changes, negotiators agreed to cut the top tax rate for individuals from 39.6% to 37% and a windfall for the richest Americans. The reduction is uh, certain to provide ammunition for the Democrats, who have plenty to go with already. House and Senate negotiators agreed to expand a deduction for state and local tax uh, taxes rather to allow individuals to deduct income taxes as well as property taxes. That deduction is uh, valuable to residents in high uh, tax states like New York, New Jersey, California. I would say Oregon, but nobody ever does. Both the House and the Senate bills would have uh, scaled back the deduction for state and local taxes, limiting it to ten thousand dollars in property taxes. So uh, we're being told that they will unveil something uh, in the next um, few days. Early next week is uh, most likely going to be the case. Meanwhile, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein stood by special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia probe today, despite a newly unearthed trove of, um, well, condemning text messages and other details that Republicans said show an insider bias on the investigative team. Rosenstein, who appointed Mueller and has overseen the Russia probe since Attorney General Jeff Sessions recused himself, testified before the House Judiciary Committee, as well as sitting for the speeches given by members of that committee. He faced a grilling from GOP lawmakers. They zeroed in on anti-Trump text messages exchanged between two FBI agents who once worked on the Mueller team. This is unbelievable, said Representative Jim Jordan out of Ohio, voicing concern that the public trust in the probe is gone. Republicans for weeks have raised concern that some investigators, in fact, the vast majority, may be biased, citing everything from their political donations to past work representing top Democratic figures and Um, allied groups, including the Clinton Foundation. But when committee uh, ranking member Representative Jerry Nadler, a Democrat out of New York, pressed Rosenstein over whether he had seen good cause to remove Mueller from his his post, Rosenstein uh, pushed back saying, no. Well, Nader asked whether Rosenstein would fire Mueller if that if he were ordered to do so. And of course, in his position, he can't just say yes or no. It's always what's actually on the table as opposed to a hypothetical situation. So a straight answer was not an appropriate answer. So he didn't give one. Anyway, the hearing today, uh, rather interesting back and forth. Republicans on one end of the uh, the debate, the Democrats on the other and Mr. Rosenstein somewhere in the middle. More on that in the days ahead, I'm certain, and we'll, uh, we'll bring you up to date. 45 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes to 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, today marks the 
87th anniversary of my mother's birth. She was born on December the 13th, 1930. And uh, today marks her 87th birthday. I'm looking forward to spending a little time celebrating with her. And it was 23 years ago today that she and I were wheeled off to OHSU, where we um, did a little exchange. Now, she gave birth to me. I gave her a kidney back. It seemed like a fair deal to me uh, at the time because it was, uh, you know, holiday season and the headlines weren't scrolling across the screen 24-7 uh, 23 years ago as they are now. It was a slow news day. So the Oregonian decided, let's cover the, and, and I think a couple of the uh, television news stations decided, let's cover this thing, mom, daughter, surgery, Christmas. Ah, it seemed like a fun thing. And they actually... Uh, did a little interview with the two of us uh, before and after, and someone even went so far as to uh, film the uh, the kidney transplant itself. It took me probably 15, 20 years before I was even interested in seeing it because something about, I don't know, seeing myself flayed open and one of my organs being hoisted out to, to another room just wasn't all that appealing. I did finally see it, and it was pretty interesting. My mom celebrates 87 years, 23 of which she's uh, had... Uh, with a kidney transplant, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, as I wish my mother a, a happy birthday, that at the time of the surgery, we were a little concerned because it, it takes so much for the person who receives a new organ uh, to maintain what's necessary for it to thrive. And she signed a form, as I'm, I'm certain they still have to, uh, to receive a transplant and that she would do everything that she's being told to do in order uh, to take seriously the sacrifice that had been made uh, and the, the, the cost of the medical facility to make this possible. And she signed that with all seriousness. And I still marvel at 87. My mother manages all of the medications that relate to that surgery and other things that have since uh, she's been required uh, to manage in terms of pres- uh, prescriptions. And at 87, she's as sharp as ever. Now, the day may come where she might need a little bit of help with that. But at this point, she's still doing it all. Uh, she lives in an apartment that my husband and I about 15 years ago made for her in our home. So she lives independently, but because we're in the same home, we have contact with each other every day. I'm aware of what groceries she has or doesn't have, what she had for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, just to make sure she's eating enough. And, uh, you know, just spend time in fellowship every holiday season, whether that's Christmas or Valentine's Day or, for that matter, May Day. Uh, I decorate her apartment. We just transitioned from fall, where I bring in ceramic pumpkins and leaves and all kinds of things, uh, to Christmas, where we set up the Christmas tree and greenery and lights. Things she would not have done on her own, because it's a lot of trouble to haul all of that stuff up and set it all up and then take it back down. In fact, I remember when my parents decided they weren't going to put a Christmas tree up. Me and my two siblings, we were incredulous. How could it be that my parents weren't going to have a Christmas tree? They always put the lights up. They had a Christmas tree. We decided, well, it had to be done. I guess it was less important to them as it was for us um, that they celebrate with all the things that we had come to uh, uh, to enjoy together. So we put the Christmas lights on the house. We set up the Christmas tree. And at the end of the season, we took it all back down again. My mother loves the decoration, but she also loves not having to set it up or take it back down. For her uh, birthday for the last several years, I have hosted uh, and my sister and niece and I have served a um, formal high tea for my mother and some of our her surviving um, dearest friends, most of whom are family members. And we uh, we don't sit down and have tea with them. We are dressed formally. We serve them as if we were virtual strangers, although not so much. Uh, And to hear them with their uh, voices, I think the age range uh, is from about 
late 70s all the way up to 92, to hear them share stories of their family growing up, church experiences together, to hear them laugh and cry and reminisce. It is the sweetest sound that one uh, could ever imagine. Um, we invite them at about 1 o'clock and 6, 7 o'clock. They're still there laughing and having a great time uh, together. They don't have the uh, opportunity to be together as often as they once did. They got together for lunch a couple of times a year. So this is a real treat for us to serve them and to accommodate uh, them all being together in one place. So far, they all live in their own homes and are providing for their own care for the most part. That may change at some point in the future, but it's part of what we do to celebrate 87 years of uh, wonderful life for my mother. She became a believer when she was in her um, her early 20s, and she never looked back. She and my father raised us in a Christian home, and I appreciated that it wasn't just all talk, that certainly we talked about what the scriptures had to say. We attended church together, Sunday school, but my parents actually lived what they, uh, what they professed. Um, their faith was lived out in our home in a way uh, that affirmed for us, us kids growing up and observing them, that they actually believed what they said. There was something to this um, this serving God. There's something to God's word. And uh, every one of us has followed in their footsteps in that regard. I think I've shared here before that when we lost my, my brother, their firstborn, the first thing my parents did when we were finally all together in that darkened living room on that day uh, in May, uh, my father went to the back bedroom. He grabbed the Bible. Uh, my mother, you could hear her crying softly, my sister and I, um, hugging each other and seeking comfort uh, together. My father opened the Bible and there he began to remind us of what God's word had to say. And we found comfort and hope and uh, the ability to persevere uh, through that circumstance. And I could probably tell you um, uh, several hours of what God did as a result of the loss of my brother and the way my parents responded in this, the high school and the people who are involved. It really is a remarkable thing when you're walking uh, with Christ and trust him, even in those very difficult circumstances. My mom and dad raised four of us, three natural kids. So we adopted my younger brother a short time after my older brother uh, drowned at a high school event. And uh, so there were always three kids in the home uh, at any given time. We're close to our mom. We spend a lot of time together and there's there are a few things uh, that are more fun than getting together for the holidays or to celebrate someone's birthday or any occasion we can come up with an excuse for to hear us all laugh and, and cry and sing. And it's just a, a wonderful thing. And I'm, I'm often reminding my mother of her legacy. She was an only child. Her parents, um, my, my grandfather had been in the military. He was World War I. He married my uh, grandmother and they'd only been married for a few years and he died of uh, complications related to injuries he sustained as a, a member of the U.S. Army. And my mom was raised by a single mom because she never remarried. She was concerned that um, that my mom be protected and well provided for and didn't want to risk the possibility of uh, of anything happening to her. So she remained a widow for the, rem- the remainder of her life, which was about uh, 90 years, 91, excuse me, 89 years uh, and so my mom was an only child, and one of her greatest joys is just sitting in the room and surveying all the faces of her kids, their uh, their husbands and wives, her grandchildren, and now her great-grandchildren. So we're celebrating the life of Lillian Yvonne Rose today, celebrating her 87th birthday. I want to honor her. I want to thank her for being an example to all of us for these um, these many, many years that we've walked with her and to just uh, remind her of what an honor and a joy it is to now serve her 
until the Lord calls her home and to provide uh, for her needs. So anyway, happy birthday, uh, Mama, also known as Bootsy by many of her, uh, her dearest friends, celebrating 87 years today. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with uh, Jason Thompson. He's the executive director of Portland Fellowship. Uh, I'd like to have him or someone from the organization on from time to time because they're doing uh, significant work in our community. uh, And you don't hear a lot about them. They're under the radar, but they are ministering to men and women, the love of Christ, the power of the gospel in ways that are are really quite remarkable. So I'm looking forward to talking with Jason Thompson uh, tomorrow on the program. And then I want to remind you that on Friday, we're looking forward to doing something a little different. We're going to be with the Gospel Truck. And I wish uh, Clark could be out there with us, but I think you're going to be holding down the fort here. Uh, anyway, the Gospel Truck is a, uh, or the Bible Truck, let's get that right, the Bible Truck uh, is a, an opportunity for you to survey the history of the Bible in a very unique uh, way, and that's going to be at Clackamas Town Center, 4 to 6 on Friday. We'll give you more details on where and how to find us um, on uh, on Thursday. So hope you'll stick around for that. want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for producing, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Happy birthday, Mama. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.